Mana 3 Media. Welcome to First Listen. I'm Derek. And I'm Justin. First Listen is a series of conversations where we'll be hearing from individuals about their experiences of what it's been like to grow up Black in America. Meet Rachel. I'm Rachel Hockett, and uh, I was born in Virginia, moved here when I was four years old. Uh, my family moved to Nashville to uh, be a part of the Christian music industry. I had my very first experience with racism in a church. Um, it was a very well-known church, uh, and I had been attending Sunday school class. And there were several instances where there was um, subtle racism. And of course, being five years old, I didn't know what to call it, but I knew something was wrong. And I remember my mom coming to pick me up and she would ask me, what's wrong? Why are you always crying when I pick you up? Like, why are you sad when I come and pick you up from Sunday school class? And I didn't want to tell her because for whatever reason, I already understood that if I told her and um, and she knew what was going on, she wouldn't let me come back. And there was still something in me that wanted friends. Um, one day it became very obvious and the teacher asked all of the children to get in a circle and hold hands and pray. And the little boy that was next to me said, I don't want to hold her hand She's because she's black. And, and he said something like, and her eyes are ugly. And the teacher said, it's okay. You don't have to hold her hand. And they left me outside of the circle and they held hands and prayed together. And um, that day, my mom, when she came to pick me up, she said, today, you're going to tell me what happened. You're going to tell me what's wrong today. And I will never forget. She held my little hands. She put them on her stomach and her hand over mine. And she was so upset. She was trembling. I just remember my mom trembling. And the teacher said, Rachel, don't, don't, don't worry your mother with that, with this. And I told my mom in front of them what happened. And she said, my mom said, well, you will never come back here again. And we need to pray for these people that they actually get to meet God one day because hatred like this, people who hate like this don't go to heaven. I'm not sure if I was old enough to say that that experience made me feel like this is how the world is going to be. I will say that what I took away from that experience was something is wrong with you. In hindsight, when I look back now, I feel like that seed that was planted was the cause of, of a lot of the insecurities and a lot of hard things I walked through when it came to how I saw myself. And 
I actually put up with things and behaviors because it said to me something's wrong with you because I was a minority in that situation and a person in a position of authority said to me that basically you're not enough and it's okay that he doesn't want to hold your hand because you're black. That's okay. It's okay for you to be treated this way. It's okay for you to be abused in church. How does a person not adapt the message that there's something wrong with them when you hear messages like this? And not to mention that you turn on the TV and there's not any representation. You go to the store and you look for the doll that looks like you and there's one or two available hiding behind the abundance of blondes, brunettes, and red hair. So we can, we can represent all the different shades of white, but not one or two shades of black. There was a little girl that lived next door to me. She would come outside and taunt me over the fence that separated my house from hers. And she would literally, eight years old, black and ugly, black and ugly, black and ugly, black and ugly. She was a friend of two of my friends who lived on the other side of my house. And because I wanted friends and I wanted to fit in, I wanted to be friends with her too because she was friends with my other friends. And I didn't want them to have a play date and I couldn't have a play date. Like I'm extremely social. <laughs> so like relationships are everything to me. And my mom would say to me, I don't know why you choose to go after her. She doesn't deserve to be your friend. The next neighborhood we lived in, um, it was a really nice neighborhood in Franklin. And we were one of the only black families there. So God forbid you're a black family that lives in a really nice neighborhood in Franklin in the early 1990s. You're going to pay, you know. And uh, so there were the nosy neighbors that were trying to figure out what my parents did. You know, how do you go, how can you guys afford to live in this neighborhood? These are real things that happen where they come over and they pick and they pry and they ask questions. And they want to know how you can afford your piano and they want to know how you can afford your cars and they want to know what you do. And, you know, it's not to bring a casserole and make friends, it's to pry. Um, I don't want to diminish or devalue all the other good things that happened in those years. But I think what came and affirmed the message again from the first church where I experienced racism was that I was again in another church where I was a minority. This was age 13. And of course, I had other racial experiences from five to 13. But when we, we, our family became a part of a church where, like I said, I was a minority again, and it brought up all the same insecurities that I had when I was younger. So as a teenager, when you start developing, black women develop in different ways than white women. And so for me, it was like, okay, 
I'm growing hips and <laughs> all these other things. And my friends are not developing like I am. Like we got different body shapes going on. And um, again, when you're a minority, it feels like, well, what's going on with me? What's what's wrong with me? You know, so it, it, it was it was there again. And it was there that I developed an eating disorder. Kind of makes sense now that I'm <laughs> that I'm talking it out. Uh, I remember going to slumber parties with my friends and and they'd say things like, oh, my, you know, this is so big. My thighs are so big. My butt is so big, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, I'm way bigger than you are. So you must think that about me. And of course, when you're, when you're 13, 14, 15, you don't fully understand that it's okay for you to be completely different than your friends and still be acceptable. And maybe I won't put that on everyone. That could have something to do with my personality or my makeup, you know? Um, but I also feel like I was striving to be acceptable in some way. And there was some kind of standard that I was trying to reach because of the those that I was surrounded with. And so I just remember thinking, well, if I'm super tiny, then maybe, you know, I will be acceptable as well. Being a black woman, woman in the entertainment industry in the 90s and early 2000s for sure presented obstacles and struggles that I did not see my white counterparts experiencing. I remember wanting to audition for a, uh, there's a, it's a really well-known Christian organization and they had co held conferences for years and it was a big panel of women and they'd have, you know, the, the women speakers and then the women praise and worship team. And in those days, it was always where it was several you know, white speakers, singers, and maybe just one or two black women, you know, it was like, we got to have a token, but that's all we need. We don't, you know, as if there's only one story to tell if you're black, we, there's an abundance of stories to tell if you're a white woman, but there's not many stories to tell if you're black. And so that that already f reflected the dehumanization of black people in our country. I mean, you know, and, and massive, I mean, everybody knows that racism is, is thick in the South. Um, but I remember asking a friend who was a part of this praise and worship team. I said, Hey, you know, I'd love to, and I'd worked with these people before. So I knew, you know, they were great people. Um, I'd worked with him before. And so I said to her, I would love to come back and possibly audition to do, um, to be on the team again for this conference. And she was like, I know it sounds bad, but we've already got a black woman and they probably won't consider you. There's three white women and one black woman on the team. 
So one of them, you know, ha- couldn't do it. And they weren't going to entertain bringing me on because they already had a black woman. And I say this with nothing in my heart that I don't feel like I'm a victim. I have been victimized, but I'm not a victim because I choose not to be. So I, I just feel like I need to put that out there, that my story is not one of, um, you know, lack of victory. And but those are because of my choices, not because of what I've been offered or what's been done to me, because my parents praised the color of my skin. They praised it and they praised me and they praised how I looked and how I was and kept instilling in me over and over again who I was. Um, That is also strongly and due to the fact that my mother and father have this beautiful relationship with God and they taught me to follow him. And all of my conversations with him proved that the others who thought I was less than were wrong. And that's the difference. The difference is they, they introduced me to my maker at a young age. And somehow I always felt and knew that my maker made me amazing. It was like I, it, it prevented me from feeling like I was a victim, even though I knew things that were being done to me were wrong and that I was being victimized. There was something in me because of my relationship with him and my relationship with my parents that that was the truth that kept rising to the surface and that kept always batting down the other things that were coming to me. Somehow deep inside, I knew, but it's not true what you think about me. Like, even though I'm trying and I'm working to kind of fit in and all these things, like there was something in me that was like, but you're wrong. (laughs) You know, like this is wrong. I'm telling you, the truth just kept popping up to the top. It just kept, you know, it's like you, I, I see it as this. I see it as someone literally putting something in water, like a balloon in water and trying to press it and submerge it down to the bottom, but it just keeps popping up. That is what the truth that my maker, that God kept presenting to me about who I was. It's like it just kept popping up to the surface and all kinds of other foolishness kept trying to submerge that thing. And it just, (laughs) it just, you know, Doesn't mean it didn't hurt and that it's not infuriating and that I won't spend the rest of my life talking about this and bringing awareness to make it right because it's not right. The gravity pushing that balloon down is hate and fear manifesting as racism. People fear what they don't understand and people hate what they fear. And most people don't have the courage to deal with it and say, how do I take this fear by the horns and deal with it? And so they try to suppress it. I'd like to offer some some hope 
and encouragement for, again, those who are just feeling kind of stuck with what to do. It, it takes work. It takes work and it takes being uncomfortable in order to bring about change. And one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in John 15 and 13. It says, greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for a friend. And what I've learned is that our lives are not necessarily our physical lives. Like how many opportunities are we going to have to jump in front of a bullet for someone? You know, not, not very many. Um, I think when the scripture talks about laying your life down for another person, um, that there's no greater love than that you lay your life down. He's not literally meaning that you die for a person, although, you know, that has happened. But more than that, we are given an opportunity to lay down our life when we lay down our belief systems and our pride and our, our rights and all the things that we are, have grown accustomed to um, feeling like we deserve or that this is mine. This is, this is my freedom and my whatever. And um, when we, again, lay down our rights and we go, you know what? I'm going to fight for this thing because it's right. I'm going to fight to see equality. I'm going to fight for my brothers and sisters um, to have the same rights that I do. I'm going to fight for that. And once you lay your life down to fight for that, you will find that you have more joy, that you have more peace, that you go to sleep satisfied, that you are fulfilled. You will find that you have abundance from choosing to lay those things down. Just become aware of what's going on around you and listen. Listen without defense. Listen without even building a case against what you're hearing in your mind. And for those who, uh, who are believers, who believe in God and believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that is able to help a person listen, ask for help. Literally. Ask, hey, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me to hear. Help me to listen. And then do some homework. Declaration of Independence, Constitution, Bill of Rights, all of that. Just go and read. History is right there, and history is the best teacher for us to move forward. When we know what happened, we can not feel shame. Shame doesn't help anyone do anything. In fact, shame grows, <laughs> shame grows the fear. And then the fear causes, you know, us to react and not respond. And then we're just throwing our fists in the air because we're afraid and we don't want to feel shame. And so then it causes us to turn uh, you know, to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. And it just perpetuates the same thing. But if we just are able to look and go, hey, this really did happen. How can we not repeat the mistakes of our past? Because we're capable of doing that. We're capable of moving forward in victory. We're capable of moving forward in um, adapting and creating actual 
ways that can be sustained and that can be handed off to our children. It can happen. Doing the work of racial repair, there's nothing to be reconciled to because it wasn't ever right. So that work of racial repair and reform is going to start by realizing that this is a marathon and not a sprint. It's going to start by accepting that there are some people that are in my space right now that will never get it and they will never see it. But I have the opportunity and the ability to let that change start with me. If we can understand and accept that and rejoice over the fact that I have the power to bring change by allowing my heart to first become empathetic. I believe listening and empathy are the first changes. They are the first um, the first two things we have to adopt to bring change because you can't care about changing something when you don't have compassion and empathy toward it. And so understanding that, okay, people I love are probably, there's a possibility that they could die racist. Um, <laughs> it's really sad, but it's one of those things we kind of have to adapt. Um, and then knowing me, myself, I have the power to have the hard conversations and to ask the questions and to, um, to develop empathy in my heart. I can tap into empathy and put myself in that person's shoes and actually then relate to them from that place of empathy, not pity, not, um, I feel sorry for you. Nobody needs that. We don't need anybody to feel sorry for us. We don't need anybody to feel ashamed of what happened. Um, we need empathy and understanding and conversation and compassion. That is what starts to, um, uh, to it's, it starts to, to the thaw. It's the touch that starts the thawing process where us as a people have become hardened in so many ways because you're exhausted and you as, as many times as you see a person getting gunned down on tv you actually know that it won't be the last like my precious little 10 year old she said a couple of weeks ago about um the recent murder that happened she said mommy i was feeling so much better because it had been so long since it had happened and it wasn't so long it was just a couple of months ago and in her mind it's been so long since one of us has been killed. And that's not long. So it starts with caring, with caring that a 10 year old who is a beautiful black little girl is saddened again, sitting at the table with her mother because Oh, mommy, I thought it was getting better. It's been so long since one of us has been killed. And it just hap it keeps happening again, is what she said. So the change starts with you caring that those conversations are happening. 
with a little precious black girl and her mother. That's where the change starts. It doesn't have to be big. It starts small with just having a conversation or calling a person of color, you know, and saying, hey, tell me your story. It will be uncomfortable and you're gonna say the wrong thing and you're gonna ask the wrong questions and that's okay because change is messy. Revival is messy, but it's okay. Staying the same is even messier. Which mess do you wanna have? There's this nasty Southern way that just pours syrup all over everything and makes it seem like that's not me. I'm, I'm a good person. I got black friends. I watch Oprah. I like Michael Jackson. I like, you know, whatever. And liking and appreciating our style and our talent and what we can do doesn't mean that you actually embrace us as a people. And so that's been the hardest thing is it's the sneaky stuff where you can just tell that they've got their, their black people that are okay. These are the black people that are all right. But y'all as a people, mm -mm. stay away. They don't know that they've been brainwashed. Like, okay, think about it. Everyone that you see on TV that's in a position of power is, is a white person. It took us 220 years to even elect a black president. I mean, everything in your surroundings have been in your favor and have looked like you. So how could you not be a little bit racist? How could you not feel some kind of way when someone black is in a position of authority? It rubs you the wrong way because your environment has not put anything else in front of your eyes. You, you haven't even had an option to, to grow in respect for a black person in a position of authority. In that way, white eyes have been as abused as black eyes because we have not seen anything different. It hasn't been presented to us. <laughs> So, of course you're plagued with some racism. That's what your country gave you. <laughs> you know, I'm not concerned about the people who are outright saying the N-word that are driving around with the, with the Confederate flags. I know where you stand. It's those that are the teachers and the pastors and the politicians that are not helping with the laws that are not helping to breed community with white people and black people, where you're like, I'm not racist, but I'm also not willing to sit down and have a conversation with a person that is not white. I'm also not willing to ask you your story. I'm also, I'm afraid of what you might say. I'm afraid of what might come out. And what does that mean for me? Who does that make me? That is the mindset that concerns me where you're like, let's just wait for the reports. Let's wait and see. Surely that person who just got gunned down for no reason, surely there was something else that was going on. It couldn't be our police department. 
It couldn't be our higher ups. There's something else going on. We'll just wait for the reports. These are the things that I hear myself. I'm not just saying something that I've seen on the news. Well, let's just wait and see what the reports. Let's just wait and see what comes out. Because if it was the other way around, you already know. You, we already know. Hell and mayhem. If someone didn't come along and break that and confront that lie with the truth, then it keeps being perpetuated even though you are not aware. And that's how covert racism is allowed to live. It's like laying dormant. It may not have all the way come out as cancer yet. The test doesn't say cancer, but it's there. You can't see it, but it's there. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I would love to see us actually make that happen for all people. Liberty and justice for all people. Freedom is not always necessarily liberty. You set us free, but there was no liberty because the laws were not created to serve us. The laws were not created to advance us. And that's just the truth. This is not to throw shame. That is the truth. So let's take that truth and change it. We have the power to change it. If men wrote the laws, then we can actually walk them out. It really is as simple as that. It's not as complicated as we make it. It really isn't. Wow, that was phenomenal. Um, hearing what it's been like for Rachel, you know, her experience with her, her, her daughter uh, and her daughter really unpacking and processing uh, the recent killings or the killings that had happened or taken place. Um, it's a lot for a, a, a nine-year-old to really have to process. And so I think for her, it wasn't so much of the fact that she, um, that her daughter realized that it wasn't that much time that had taken place between uh, the killings, but just the fact that as a nine-year-old, you have to process that someone was killed um, and it was probably just because they have the same skin color as you. Man, that was powerful. Uh, her, um, vulnerability to tell that story was, um, beautiful. And I'm so glad that she, uh, shared that with us. And, um, when she said something about the, the, the thaw, mm -hmm. you know, empathy being the thaw, mm -hmm. I think empathy is underrated. That was, that, that was powerful. Empathy was actually something that st stuck out to me as well. So in order to do this work, you know, first, take a moment to listen, right? But when you do listen, you have to, one, take that step uh, in an empathetic way, yeah, right? Because I think you'll really miss um, the, the true conversation if, if it's happening without uh, empathy in place. Absolutely. Well, we, um, we loved talking to Rachel and um, loved her sharing her heart with us uh, and her story. And um, stay tuned for the next uh, first listen. First Listen is hosted and produced by Derek and Justin and is part of the Mana 3 Media Network. We'd love for you to click subscribe and tell a friend about us. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. For more information, check out our show notes, and we hope you join us for our next episode dropping very soon.